Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is me. It's a solo episode. Today we're going to be talking about making a race day plan. So welcome everyone. I am Elizabeth. I am very excited to have you here today. I haven't done a solo episode in a while. And this is actually my first episode recording with my new fancy microphone. Um, if you've followed me for any period of time, you know that I have been using a very bargain valued microphone, um, 30 bucks on Amazon up until now. And you know what you get, what you pay for. But Hey, when I first started out, I did not want to spend a lot of money because I kind of didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea how long this would last, but it has lasted and it has lasted to the point where I think it's important to invest in the way that you sound. So hopefully you will notice a difference in microphone quality, sound quality going forward. So I also wanted to take a moment to just say how much I appreciate each and every one of you who just listens, follows, who reaches out, um, you know, my one-on-one athletes, the people who message me their questions, the people who are following any of my plans, you know, it's a delight to work with all of you. And I just wanted to let you know how much I appreciate you being part of my life. So thank you for helping me do what I love, which is talk about running all day long. And I also wanted to address something that I think every podcaster has to address at some point or another, and that is the uh, whole ads and and sponsors thing. And, you know, look, I, I don't want this to be a show where it feels like you're watching a sitcom and every 30 seconds there's an ad break and you're like, oh my God, like enough with the ads. Holy crapola, this is ridiculous. But at the end of the day, my production of this podcast on a weekly basis is not an insignificant part of my time. And although I obviously believe there's great value in doing this, sometimes it's nice to get just paid a little bit for your time when you're doing this. That being said, I... And I know everybody says this. I'm only going to work with people I genuinely believe in. I I am absolutely saying that to you. If you are hearing any sort of sponsored spot, which is going to be very made clear, right? You know what an ad sounds like. You're not stupid. If you're hearing any sort of sponsored promotion of any sort of product or service or anything like that, it's going to be because of something that I personally use and enjoy and believe in. Now, because of where I am in the space of understanding the complexities and nuance of all the different options we have to us as runners, there are probably going to be a lot of sponsorships that are not going to come my way because I'm going to refuse to promote one thing over another because I think both are equally good, right? I'm not going to ever tell you, well, I might in some cases, but there are very few things where I would unequivocally say, this is absolutely the best one forever and you should ignore all other competitors. And you know, some brands want you to do that and I won't do that. So I want you to know that if I recommend something, it's because I personally use it. I personally enjoy it. I personally like it. I'm not saying it's going to be the thing that you absolutely adore and you might like a different version of that thing better. But what I am saying is that if there's anything on this show that sounds like a sponsored ad, one, it's going to be made very clear. Like I'm not sneaking in, right? Any sort of subliminal messaging. The things that I 
like, I will recommend the brands that I work with are brands that I personally use and find value in and hope that you find value in them too. Now I'm also, you know, not getting a lot of sponsors knocking at my door, offering me a whole bunch of money. I'm not anywhere at the point of selling out. I know some people do, and you can probably hear them in their shows when they go from, uh, you know, Hey, you know what? Make that money. Good for them. But that's not me. That's not me. That's not why I'm here to do this. So that's it. That's over. Uh, housekeeping done. Today we're talking about making a race day plan. How to plan for your race and planning. Failing to plan is planning to fail. You are going to put in months, if not years, of work leading up to the performance on one very specific day and the attention to which you plan your day. And we're talking about all the different types of ways you are going to be making a race day plan. You should be thought out with care and attention because what's the point of training for one race for four or five months if you haven't thought through the logistics of all the things that you're going to require on race day and also talking through a lot of the um, mental, emotional, physical, you know, and logistical things, all of those things matter. And as we talk about a lot in running, so much of this sport is mental and being able to have a plan for all those mental and emotional possibilities during your race, that's also really important too. So making a race day plan. You've probably seen me post this before. I do have a free race day planning worksheet on my website. It's free. People have asked me, can I pay you for this? No, just go download it and use it. (laughs) There is an accompanying blog post that is going to basically be a condensed version of this episode because the blog post specifically talks about how to work through that worksheet. But this is going to be about how to plan your race day. So using that worksheet might be part of it. But making your race day plan is probably going to be a lot more complicated for some people, especially if you have big destination races. And that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with your race day plan, planning out the logistics of your race day for some people, depending on the race they're signed up for, are probably going to start months, months, months in advance. If you are signing up for or putting your name in for a lottery for a very large race, especially an international race or race that occurs in a major city that requires you to travel there. Wherever you live in the world, for most people traveling to a major marathon, specifically, yeah, we're going to probably be focusing more on the marathon today. Although this information and these strategies, tips, tools, logistics, all these things are going to apply to any race that you do. We're going to talk a little bit later on about why you should make a race day plan for literally every race that you do. (laughs) Probably don't have to figure out which hotel you're staying at for your local 5K. You know, that's something that, yeah, don't have to worry about that. But the other parts of your race day plan are going to matter no matter what race you're doing. But yes, the very first thing you need to make sure of when you're making your race day plan is that you have your basic logistics squared away. How are you getting to the race? Where are you going to stay if you are traveling for the race? How long will you be gone? Is there a time zone change involved? How many time zones? How early should you arrive in advance if you are traveling for your race? What is the, if you are traveling, I'm talking obviously it's traveling for a race, If you are traveling for a race, what else are you doing while you're there? So let's talk through some logistics here. If you are traveling for a major race event, whether it is a half full marathon, 5K, 10K, whatever it is, there are destination races of all types. If it involves travel, you are already adding a layer of complexity to your race day plan. This is not a bad thing. A lot of people travel for races all the time. Most people travel for races, you know, especially the marathon majors or their large races, if they found a good one, 
Maybe it's just across the state line. Maybe it's across the country. Maybe it's in a different country entirely. But whenever you are traveling for a race that requires you to leave your hometown, you are adding a layer of complexity and you have to make sure that you are really squared away on the details with that. So one of the the first things you need to make sure, one, is when you're signing up for a race that you understand that you are able to get there and the logistics of traveling to that race allow you to perform your best on race day. What does this mean? This means if you are running the London Marathon on Sunday, don't take a red eye on Saturday night, (laughs) right? Basic stuff. However, when you are relying on travel schedules like flight schedules or if you're in Europe maybe train schedules that would be nice in America I'd love to rely on really nice super fast clean well-run trains to get to places you have to make sure that when you arrive for your race allows you enough time to decompress ahead of your race so what does this mean if you're crossing multiple time zones you know you're getting there hopefully at least a day in advance I know not everybody's schedule allows that to happen There are specific tips and tricks that you can do to help shift your body clock back before you've even traveled. And on that note, I want to say that this is not an episode to discuss how to specifically prepare for races in a different time zone or how to prepare for races at altitude or how to prepare for races, um, you know, who that have lots of hills. This is how to make a race day plan to accommodate all those things. So you have to understand the complexity of if I'm traveling for a race, there's going to be a lot more logistics involved staying in a hotel. Where is your hotel in relation to the start and finish lines? How are you going to get from the start and finish line to and from your hotel? Where are you going to eat? You know, if you're away from home, you probably have a lot less control over your food unless you're bringing it all with you. I know some people who travel with all of their, you know, pre-race and morning of race food. That's also an option, but you have to understand if I'm going to be out of my house, I need to make sure that I have all of the logistics in place. So yes, If you are traveling for a race in a major city, especially one you've never been to, making sure you understand where your hotel is in relation to the start and finish lines. How are you going to get from your hotel to the start line? How far away is your hotel from the finish line? What are your food options around your hotel? Are you going to be relying on eating out at restaurants or is there some sort of like, can you go to a a local Whole Foods and like just get stuff that you are is pre-packaged that you know you've eaten before because you bought it from your other local Whole Foods or whatever the local grocery chain is. All of these things need, need to be taken into consideration and we haven't even gotten to the actual like race part of this, right? If so many things can go wrong on race day that are completely out, not because they wrong, okay? Some things just go, let's say sideways. So many things are out of your control When it comes to race day, including the weather, you have zero control over the weather, how your travels went, how you feel on the day, right? There are so many things, you know, whether you wake, maybe you had a random nightmare and then you are waking up in like a terrible panic and sweat, right? You don't have a lot of control over that. There are so many things you don't have control over on race day that you have to be able to at least plan to have control over as many things as possible. The other thing that I think is important when it comes to planning for your race day is that if you, I don't, well, I'm going to say this is my personal experience. Race day can be a very anxiety inducing day. And a lot of people deal with anxiety by freaking out a little bit, right? And trying to change things last minute. And so if you don't have a really firm plan in place for all of these things, you are liable to make 
poor decisions in the moment, which then if you make those decisions because you didn't have a solid plan in place and you look back on that and say, yeah, I probably shouldn't have made that decision. I probably should have, I probably should have had a plan in place or I probably should have stuck with my plan. Having a plan in place, a really solid plan, it might seem like overkill to some that you are nitpicking exactly when, where, why, and how you're going to eat your dinner before your race. I think that's a really good idea because if you, if you make decisions in the moment in a, in a situation where your anxiety and your nerves and your, you know, all your stress and your, all of this is super high, you actually might make the wrong decision. So if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, right? How are you going to get to your race? Where are you going to stay? How many days are you going to arrive in advance if you're traveling for your race? The other thing to keep in mind too, is if you are traveling for a race across time zones, are you a good traveler? And what do I mean by this? Does traveling really freak you out, stress you out? I know in the age of COVID, traveling can be more fraught with anxiety because you know, you're know you around people and you might be in a closed metal tube. And you're, of course, hopefully, I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm always going to wear a mask on the airplane from now on. I haven't gotten sick in years. It's great. Um, but you know, for some people, traveling itself can be extraordinarily anxiety-inducing. Do you have trouble adjusting to new time zones? Do you know that about yourself? If you think, yeah, whenever I travel, it really takes me like a week to really settle in. Well, that's also something you should probably know and plan for. Again, plan, 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 plan. So I mentioned briefly the food thing, right? Planning your food in advance. This is obviously we're going to talk about the in-race fueling, how to make an in-race fuel plan. But I often get questions from people who say, what's the best thing to eat the day before a marathon? Or what's the best, what's the best meal to have the morning of my race? And let me tell you, if you don't already know that, that's not good. In your training, your training is also part of the planning, not just planning your body to be able to do what you want it to do on race day, but all the other logistical things that occur around your training, that all is part of how you plan. When you are doing your training, you should be figuring out what sits well in my stomach the night before a long run. What kind of carbs do I prefer? Uh, What do I like to eat the morning of a long run or a hard workout? That is also separate. How do I figure out my in-race fueling strategy? Well, you have to practice that on race day, right? So when you're making your food plan, None of this should be new to you. Nothing, we say nothing new on race day, nothing new on race day. The night before your race is not the time to go to a pasta dinner if you never eat pasta, right? The night before your race is not the time to try that awesome new Korean barbecue place if that's something you've never done before. Save the adventurous eating for after your race. Same thing with the day of your race, the morning of your race, right? This is if you are used to eating a bowl of oatmeal and a banana before your run, before your tuna braces, before your long runs, before your hard workouts, and the only thing available to you in the hotel buffet is scrambled eggs and English muffins, well, you got to figure that out ahead of time. You're going to figure, how am I going to eat what I need to eat when I need to eat it? So the fueling is a huge component of all of this too, right? Nothing new on race day. Now is not the time to try new things. Now is the time to do exactly the same thing that you've done before, which you know works. So yeah, this might mean that if you are traveling for a destination race and you're showing up somewhere, you are going to be not so much fun. 
(laughs) until you've actually done your race because you're probably going to be sticking to a very strict schedule in terms of how much you're walking around, how much activity that you're doing and what and when you're eating. That is all very, very normal. So the fueling, yes, the timing of the meals. The other thing to keep in mind, traveling for races can be very dehydrating and it can throw off your normal eating schedule because traveling is disruptive. And also you might be crossing time zones. Like I said, the, the thing you really need to pay attention to is eating on a schedule, like literally set timers on your phone. If you need to making sure you're hydrating enough, hydrating water plus electrolytes. Very, very, very important. The worst thing you want to do is make all of this plan about what's going to happen when you get to the race and okay, I know where my hotel is and blah, blah, blah. But then you traveled for a day and you got really dehydrated and you can't really, you know, it takes a while for our body's hydration to catch back up and then you run out of time and all of a sudden it's race day and guess what? You're still dehydrated from traveling. That's not a good place to be. Okay. So you mentioned that I haven't, or you'll notice I haven't mentioned like where you should be staying when you go to these races. And that's because I understand that tr- racing is expensive. I know we talk about running. Oh, all you need is a pair of shoes. Well, one, those shoes are expensive. <laughs> Traveling for races, participating in races in general, even local races that I participate in, you know, we're talking 30 or 40 bucks for a local 5k, which uh, is 20 minutes away from my house and for which I get a t-shirt. And, you know, maybe a, a drink afterwards or a, you know, snack bar. Racing is not cheap, especially if you are participating in large or long races. You may have noticed that the cost of races tends to rise with the length of the race. Marathons tend to be the most expensive races. And then large and popular races tend to be even more expensive. You might be looking at hundreds of dollars for a race entry fee before you even think about the logistics of travel. How are you going to get there? Flights are, of course, they're expensive. Getting a hotel room in a major city on a major marathon weekend is not cheap. So if you have the luxury, and it is truly a luxury and privilege, to stay convenient to the start and or finish line, depending on what race you're participating in. Of course, some major races are point to point. Some are start and finish in roughly the same place. You know, I'm thinking Disney World and Chicago, you know, versus something like London or New York. Those are point to point races. Which is more important to you? And what is your budget? Realistically, what is your budget? If you're on a budget, it might require a little bit more finesse on your part from a logistics standpoint. But these are all things you should have planned in advance, especially if you're going to get to the start line. So, When it comes to the actual race day plan, work backwards from when you are required to be at the start line. And this goes for any race, right? So now we talk about most of the logistics of traveling for a race. Look, if the race is in your next town over, get up and go. (laughs) Hopefully it doesn't require a whole bunch of finesse on your part for your logistics, right? If you're like, yeah, but it's 15 minutes away. None of that applies to me. Cool. That's good. Work backwards on race day from when you were required to be at the start line. This can either be when your corral closes for large races, if you are going off in waves with large corrals, or just when the race is, right? So I'm thinking normal race with a mass start, a couple hundred, maybe, you know, a thousand people, and the gun time's at eight o'clock, right? So you know, okay, well, the race starts at eight, and it's 20 minutes away, And I want to be there between 30 and 45 minutes in advance so I can do my warm up, yada, yada. For some, you know, some larger races, you might want to be there. Even if they're local to you, you might want to be there a little bit farther in advance. 
The larger the race, the more complicated the actual getting to race day logistics is going to be. And I'll give you a really good example of the New York City Marathon as one of the most complex, logistically complex start of race that I have yet worked through with my athletes because it is a point to point race, which means the race starts and finishes in a different spot as opposed to a race that starts and ends in the same spot. A point-to-point race usually offers transportation to the start line. Now, for a lot of races, a point-to-point race, this looks like they just bus you along the route to the start line, drop you off, and then that then you go. So Boston is an example of this, right? Like for when you are on the bus heading to the start line of the Boston Marathon, you're on a lot of the roads that you're going to be running back (laughs) down into Boston from the start line of the Boston Marathon. But New York is not one of that. New York, you have to take a ferry to the start line. You have to take a ferry to the start line because the start line is on Staten Island. And the ferry schedule only allows you to, you know, take a ferry every so often. Of course, you can get there in different ways, right? But for most people, it's going to be the most convenient way to get there because of where they're staying. And the corrals close really early, right? So you might not be going, you might not be starting until 11, but you have to get there at like 730. What? What are you going to do between then and now? So that's why I say the difference between when do you actually start running Right. So logistics of when do you actually start running in terms of thinking about your fueling and hydration and warm up needs from the actual start of your race. But your logistics of race day need to really consider when you need to be at the start line or be at the start of the race for your specific corral closure or wave or whatever your designated time is. So work backwards from there. When do I need to be at the start line? How long is it going to take me to get to the start line? How much earlier in advance do I need to wake up to make sure that I have time to do all the things I need to do before I even leave for the start line? Like eat. Maybe you shower. Maybe you don't. I don't shower before a race. That's counterproductive. (laughs) Go to the bathroom like 12 times, right? Um, making sure that you are working on any things. Maybe you have a pre-race routine where you do some mobility exercises that are even before your pre-race warm-up. Maybe you are a person who goes on a shakeout run hours before the start of your race. And there are some, you know, if you are a, an athlete of a certain caliber, you might do a very short shakeout run when you get up four, three, four hours before the start of your race. Most people don't. Most people just save their pre, pre-race warm-up for relatively close to the start of the race. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When do you need to be at the start line and how are you going to get there? And what do you need to bring with you, right? This is also going to be very, very different depending on where you're racing, what you're racing, and what the conditions are. So where are you you sleeping the night before? When are you getting up? How much time do you need between the time you get up and the time you leave for the race? How long does it take you to get to the race? When do you need to arrive at the race by? And then, and then all of that How much time is it 
is there between when you are required to be at the race start and when you actually start running? This is something that is really tricky for a lot of people because rarely in our normal training lives do we ever actually have that much time between getting up, you know, preparing, and then going and sitting somewhere before we actually start running. So you can prepare for a lot of things in your training, right? Like, oh, I have a morning race. I need to train in the morning. I have a hilly race. I need to train on, on hills. I have a night race. I need to run at night. Uh, blah, 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 blah. All these things. Oh, my pre-run meal. I know what I eat before I run. I know what my pre-run warm-up looks like. I know all of these things about my training. I've practiced them. I've done them. I've done them over and over and over again. I've done them week in, week out for months and months and months. And yet, when was the last time you woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning and didn't start running until 1030 but in the between, you didn't really do anything. That's a long time to be awake before you actually go do your performance thing. If you can, I know not everybody has the luxury of doing this. Anything that is going to be different or unique to your race day experience in terms of like timing or anything, right? If you can, in your training, you don't have to do this every weekend, but it is helpful once or twice to mimic the schedule of your race day start. If you, of course, if you have one of those complicated big marathon starts. So if you're participating in a large race where you have to get up at an ungodly hour, but don't start running until forever later, practice that on one of your long runs. It's going to be weird. You're going to be like, why am I up this early? I'm the only one eating breakfast in my kitchen. Oh my God. And then you just hang out, (laughs) right? Then you just hang out for a while. You hang out and then you do your pre-race warm-up routine and then you maybe jog a little bit. And then of course, then you're off and running. It is helpful to understand how your body responds to that. The other thing, again, coming back to food and fueling and the importance of dialing in your race day nutrition is that preparing for race day fueling or any fueling situation when you are awake and then don't run for hours, you can't just get away with a pre-run snack. And this is not an episode about nutrition. I have, I have dozens of episodes about nutrition. You can listen to any one of them and there'll be probably dozens more, right? I'm always talking about food because it's so important. But if you are used to waking up on a Saturday morning, maybe do long runs on Saturday, Let's say you wake up at 6.30 and you eat, uh, you know, your pre-run, a, a hefty pre-run snack, as I like to call it with my, a hefty snack. And then you're out the door like an hour later and then you do your long run and that's it, right? Well, you're only awake for an hour between by the time you get up and by the time you go. But if you're going to be awake for like four hours or five hours, you, your hefty snack, you have to eat more than that. And this is going to be for you to figure out your timing and your needs. But generally speaking, you're actually going to want a meal. You're going to want a breakfast. You're going to want a a heavier, when I say heavier, a larger, more robust, mostly carbohydrate breakfast the morning of your race when you have all of this time in between when you're waking up and when you are actually starting to run. Logistically, what does this mean? This means if you have to be in your corral hours ahead of time, you might be bringing your breakfast with you. Maybe you And again, this is not a nutrition episode. I am spitballing here. Maybe you wake up, you have a snack, you head out the door, you get to your corral, and then you eat your breakfast in your corral. You brought it with you. It is a portable breakfast, I hope. (laughs) 
And then you have, let's say maybe then you have two more hours hanging out at the start line before you even go off and running. You'll probably also want to have a little, a little smaller snack before your race too, right? So there's a lot of eating involved on these big race performance days. Figure out what works for you. Is it real food? Is it whole food? Is it engineered sport fuel, right? Sport fuels are designed to be, uh, dense for a reason and calorically dense. I mean that there is, they are a small volume. There is a huge difference between taking a sport gel and eating a banana from a volume perspective, right? Even though they have roughly the same amount of carbohydrate, depending on the size of the banana, of course. So when you think about what's going to make sense for you on race day, you're probably going to be looking at those portable, packable, more carbohydrate dense, possibly engineered fuel, maybe liquid calories, right? Now, if you're eating a meal, you might probably want to have some sort of, you know, other, you know, a little bit of fiber, a little bit of protein, probably not a lot of fat in there. But that, again, that's a conversation nutrition. All this, what I'm illustrating is that it's not just enough to figure out what do I need to be the start line. You have to figure out what's going to happen along the way. Okay. Gear wise, we talked about the nutrition for getting you to the start line. Gear wise, getting you to the start line. Hopefully by now, you know, by now I say by now, hopefully by race day, you figure out exactly what you're going to wear on race day because you have worn those things in training. Do not wear new things during your race, especially those longer races. Do not go buy new shoes the day before your race. Do not go buy new shorts the day before your race. Now, of course, if the, if the airline loses your luggage, you might need to, but that is also a case for carrying on your most important gear when you're traveling for races, especially those shoes, right? So carry on your most important gear if you're traveling for a race in an airplane. So the airline can't lose the things that you need the most. You do not want to find out at mile 10 that those awesome shorts that you bought at the expo actually leave you bloody. <laughs> that is not the time to figure out that those shorts are going to work for you, right? So not only what you're going to wear in the race, you may need to have several options depending on the weather, right? So you might want to have a, you know, a hot weather and a warm weather outfit or a warm weather and a slightly cooler weather, all the, right? So are options or layers or pack a bunch of different things, especially if you're traveling to a place where the weather can be variable. There are a lot of places where, yeah, it might be summer, but it also could be 45 degrees and raining, or it could be 80, right? You never know. Of course, you're going to watch the weather, but training in different types of clothing, this is also one of the reasons why we say you should train through different kinds of conditions, right? Don't just head on the treadmill when it's inside. Don't only run inside, you know, don't only run outside when it's super nice out. Don't head inside when it's too hot. Like you, you should not only prepare your body to run in different kinds of conditions, but also train in gear that allows you to run in those kinds of conditions. There is a huge difference between dressing for a race that's going to be 40 degrees and overcast with a light drizzle and a race that's 65 degrees and sunny. Those are two completely different outfits, right? And if you've all, and of course I, you know, if you live in a place where the weather is really static, let's say you live in like in the South and it never really gets cold. That's one thing I understand. But if you have the ability to train different conditions, you should. But if you were like, I don't, I don't know what to wear in these race conditions because, you know, I never really bothered to get outside when these conditions were present. That's going to be a problem because you're not going to understand what gear is going to work for you on that day. So not only what you're going to wear in the race, but what are you going to wear to the start line? 
So large races tend to allow you, not large, tend to allow you. Most races let you do something called a uh, bag check or a gear bag check, where this is a bag that's usually issued to you when you pick up your race bib. It's a large clear bag and you can put whatever the heck you want in it and you give it to people when you get to the race or you sometimes you drop it off in advance of the race and then that bag is waiting for you at the finish line, right? So that's the stuff you're going to have at your finish. Depending on the race, you may be able to keep your gear bag with you up until relatively close to the start of the race, but this is not always the case. Some gear bag drops happen the day or in the days before the race, especially for large races, right? So if you are counting on having something with you that is going to be in your gear bag, you might not have your gear bag. You might have to carry the thing with you separately, or if you need it before and after your race, you might need two of them. So the logistics of how you'll be able to carry things with you, what you'll need in advance, whether how close to the start of the race you'll be able to have your gear bag, what you wear to the start line, what are the conditions? You may have heard people talk about throwaway sweats or, you know, throwaway layers. What does this mean? A throwaway layer is something that you wear to the start of a race that you then take off and throw away. It doesn't get trashed. Major races to collect all of that gear and donate it to whatever the local um, institution is. It, the New York City Marathon donates hundreds of thousands of pounds of clothing every year from the throwaway layers of the New York City Marathoners. But this is something that you wear to the start line that you then take off, you know, right before you cross the start line. You throw it away. So this is probably something that you're not, you're, you're not going to get it back, by the way. You're not going to get it back unless it is a throwaway layer at your local start, which I have done before. Like I've worn a jacket to the start of a race and then like left it under a tree because I live in a small town and I know it will be there when I get back. That's different. A throwaway layer is something you're not going to get back, right? Uh, so the larger the race, you know, you're not going to get those back. This is something you're going to wear that is going to help keep you warm and or dry when you are hanging out in your corral for how many hours that you are going to be there. Now, a throwaway layer doesn't actually need to be clothing, although it can be. And if it is going to be clothing, I'd recommend that you go for something that is not going to break the bank. Like you don't go buy new clothing that you're then just going to toss. I read an interview um, with somebody who uh, worked with the clothing collection for the New York City Marathon. And they said the number of like brand new, practically new with tags, like hundred $200 jackets or these layers where just people bought them and just like toss them, which is great. I mean, to donate, cool. Now that there is great options for that has been donated for other people to take advantage of, that's wonderful. But you probably don't want to spend $150 on a performance jacket that you're then going to wear for three hours and then toss. Shopping at thrift stores is a great way to find throwaway layers or rooting through your old clothing to find throwaway layers, things you've been meaning to donate for a while but haven't gotten around to it. Um, keeping yourself dry does not necessarily mean that you have to wear a rain layer. You can also wear your normal, like a throwaway sweats, right? So top and bottom that is going to keep you warm. And then you can wear things like garbage bags with the with holes cut in them to keep you dry, right? So you have your warm and you have your dry. If there's going to be any precipitation, 
at the start of your race and you're going to be hanging out for a while, your number one priority is to make sure you don't get wet. Why? One of the things that cools you off is called evaporative action of when you're, you know, you sweat and the sweat evaporates. The evaporation actually is cooling. The heat in your skin, in your body, you know, part of what the sweat does is when it evaporates, it creates coolness or, you know, a heat transfer. Thanks, thermodynamics. Um, And that is how your body cools itself off when you are sweating. The thing is, is that this happens when your skin is wet, even when you're not actively trying to cool yourself off. So this is why if you are in, you know, ambient temperatures and you get wet and the water starts evaporating off your skin, right? If you've ever been to a water park and it's not super hot out, let's say you go to a water park and it's like, it's, you know, it's mild, but there's a breeze and like, yeah, you know, it's kind of, when you're in the water, it's fine, but you get out of the water and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm freezing cold. And it's only, it's 65 degrees outside. Just me, New England baby. All right. Um, that's because you are actively being cooled off by the, by the evaporation of water from your skin. Right. So you don't want this to have, you don't want to become hypothermic before the start of your race. Cause you just, you know, got wet, <laughs> keeping yourself dry at the start of a race can be really important. So yes, trash bags, if you want to do a, a waterproof or rain layer, that's fine. I sometimes get questions about what to do if it's raining during your race, what kind of layers, rain layers you should wear. And this is going to be highly individualized because it depends on the person. But for me, I have found that wearing a rain layer, wearing a waterproof or water resistant layer while running in really anything warmer than 50 degrees. And I forgot what that is. It's like 12 degrees Celsius. Um, is actually just, it's, it just holds in too much heat, especially when you're trying to race and you're trying to really rev that engine and go at max effort, right? Cause the, the harder that you work, the more heat that your muscles create is a byproduct of all the energy that you are creating. That's how your body heats up. Um, and it, all it does is yes, there are things they're called breathable, but there's still gonna be a lot of heat that's kept in, right? So for most people in rainy conditions, you're going to be much better off just dressing normally for the conditions, wearing a build hat. If you need to keep your hands dry, you can always wear waterproof gloves and then bring a lot of anti-chafing balm on the rest of your body to help prevent chafing. Because of course we know chafing is produced by friction plus moisture. And when it's raining, there's a lot of moisture around. Okay. So get at the start line. What gear are you going to wear to the start line? Keep you warm and dry. Remembering that you're going to toss it. What else do you need? What else do you need before you start running at when between you leave your place and by the time you start running again, food, what are you going to eat? Hydration, right? Keep yourself hydrated. Do you need things like anti-chafe balm or sunscreen or lip balm or a battery pack for your phone? Or, you know, if your earbuds are the rechargeable kind, how long do the charges last? Do you bring wired phones as a backup? All of your fuel that you're going to need in your race. All of a sudden you're starting to see you're going to be carrying a lot of stuff, right? So that's something to keep in mind. It may or make sense, may or may not make sense to carry a small bag that is also like a throwaway bag, right? As you consume and use some of this stuff and gear yourself up for your actual race start. Other things that like, you know, hats, gloves. Um, oh, something else to keep in mind. This was a really good question I got recently about socks, Socks and shoes. 
So we'll talk about this. I like to put um, flip-flops. I like to put Birkenstocks, actually, in my gear check bag for post-race, for big races. I take my shoes off when I'm done running. Thank you very much. And put some sandals on. Um, if you are going to be, again, precipitating, if it is going to be nasty and you are going to be hanging out for a while and you're going to be, your feet are going to be getting wet, I would recommend bringing, you can either go the full, full bore, you can bring throwaway sneakers, right? So you're the, actually the shoes you're going to race in, you bring with you, you bring fresh shoes and your uh, fresh socks and your race day shoes separately. You do not wear them. You wear like old sneakers and regular socks or whatever. And then you're, you get wet, you know, and then you switch those out before you start running. That's one option. This, I think, was it 2018, the nasty year of the Boston Marathon? Um, you know, people are saying that the Athletes Village was just mud. It was a sea of mud, right? So people, the people who thought ahead a little bit had brought, separately brought their racing shoes and socks. And then they, you know, their feet were trashed in the mud and they were hanging out for hours and it was cold and it was nasty and it was wet. And then they got to put on fresh shoes and socks to actually race in. All of these things are things that you need to think through the logistics of when planning for your race day. So you get to the start line, you have a couple hours to kill, you're doing the right things, you're staying hydrated, you're eating on schedule, all right? How far in advance do you need to warm up? This is going to depend on you, your race, what you've practiced before, um, the conditions, Typically speaking, the longer the race, the shorter the warm up. With the thinking of that, the first part of the race is going to partially be part your warm up, anyways, right? What does this mean? This means for a marathon, you don't need to go for a 25 minute warm up jog. <laughs> um, for shorter races, I'm not saying you need to go for 25 minute warm up jog necessarily for for any race that doesn't work for you, but uh, if it's cold out and it's a short race, right? You kind of just want to warm yourself up. If it's a short race and it's cold out, you might need a, a longer, more involved warm up because you really want to start your muscles warm. You want to start ready, like the engine is warm and revved and ready to go versus those longer races, half and full marathon. You have a little bit of time to kind of ease on and do it, but you never want to start cold. So, how far in advance you do your warm up is also going to be partially dependent on what you have access to in the race start. There may not be a place to do your warm up in your corral once you've been loaded into your corral. And some of these corrals can have thousands and thousands and thousands of runners in them just in one wave. How do you get a 5 minute warm up jog in in a corral like that? You might not be able to, right? So, assessing the logistics and the thing is is that you know, thank God for the internet. You can probably find out this information from somebody's experience or can go ask it on Instagram or ask it on Reddit or ask it on some sort of message board. Hey, you know, what are the logistics of doing a warm up at so-and-so race, especially the big ones. So how far in advance from the start you actually get to do your warm up is going to be dependent on what you have access to and then what works for you specifically, right? If you can, it's helpful to do your warm up within 15 to 20 minutes of actually starting your race. That may not be possible for you, but you want to prevent yourself from starting cold. You should probably be able to get away with doing a dynamic warm up, dynamic movements in your corral that just take up just a little bit of space. 
doing some warm-up is always better than doing no warm-up. And then finally, the actual plan for the race. This is the big one, right? <laughs> you know, I think, my God, she talks so much about how we even get to the start of the race and she hasn't even talked about the race. Making your race plan is really, really, really important for all the very same reasons that we have to plan for what, how we're going to even get to the race, how we're even going to arrive there, the logistics of getting to the start of the race. Because having a solid race plan in place makes it far more likely that you will successfully execute the things that you are required to do in your race to make it successful. What does this mean? Having a race day plan that says, well, just don't go out too fast is a lot less specific than having a race plan that says, okay, for the first three miles, my goal is between this and this pace and this and this effort. And in this specific part of the race, my goal is to warm up and settle in to the effort and make sure I hit my first fueling and hydration stop. Whoa. Those, that's basically the exact same thing as saying, don't go out too fast, but it's a lot more specific. Your brain is going to be going crazy on race day. And the more specific instructions that you have to follow, the better off you'll be, right? Because in the moment you're thinking, don't go out too fast. Oh, but I feel so good on ah, the adrenaline. Oh my gosh. And all of a sudden you realize you're running 30 seconds per mile faster than you should be on mile one, right? That's not good, right? So if you have a really detailed plan in place that says, this is my goal for this section of the race, blah, 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 and continue. I like to divide up the strategies or the goals for your actual race. Your pacing strategy is a separate strategy from what your race goals are. And that is also separate from what your hydration and fueling strategy is, right? So one of the easiest things you can do for most people, because it's going to be time-based for their fueling and the hydration is either going to be, you know, you're going to carry your hydration with you and have full control over it, or you're going to be relying on in-course hydration and you're going to know exactly where the stops are. Making your race day fueling and hydration plan, your racing fueling and hydration plan is probably one of the easiest things to do. And you can start with that because you should know by now exactly when, where, how much of the fuel and hydration you're going to take along the course. For me, that's pretty easy. Fueling, for most of my athletes, we aim for especially half and full marathon, especially the full marathon, right? Very even frequency of fueling based on time, not distance. And that's how sports recommend, sports dietitians recommend that you fuel during your long runs and your races is by time, not distance, because your needs are based on time, not by distance. So making that fueling and hydration plan first is probably going to be where you should start because when that is the framework that's going to allow you to do the pacing strategy to go after the goals that you have all of that to make those you know assessments of how effort feels and etc cetera, etc cetera. for most people i'm going off the recommendation here you're going to aim between 30 and 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour on those longer races. So for most people, we're only talking about in-race fueling and races are going to be over an hour. So for some people that might be a 10K, but for most people, it's going to be a half and a full marathon. For races that are longer than, if you're going to be out there for longer than two and a half hours, you're going to be looking more like 60 to 90 grams per hour. Me saying this to you is probably way more fuel than you ever, like, are you like, are you kidding me? I take three gels or my marathon and I thought that was sufficient. No, 
probably not. If you've been successfully marathoning on three gels, you'll probably be far more successful at marathoning with more. (laughs) So the fueling and hydration strategy, the frequency of fueling, what you're going to take, when you're going to take it. Do you need additional electrolytes? Are you using your own hydration? Are you relying on on-course hydration? Are you getting the number of carbs and the sodium requirements and the fluids that you need per hour, every hour that you're racing? And when I say that usually you're talking about every 30 minutes for most people, it's going to be the optimal fueling frequency. So for a lot of people, the general strategy is going to look like a gel or a sport fuel every 30 minutes with water. And then every so often you might be adding electrolytes into. So if you're out there for five hours, that's a lot of fuel, but you know, it's regular, right? So that's your, that's your strategy. It can get more complicated if you're relying on on-course hydration or partially relying on on-course hydration because you need to strategize where your relative, uh, where you're going to be in your race, depending on where those mile or kilometer markers are with the hydration. So you have to have a rough estimate of what your pace is going to be, how long it's going to take you from get to A to B, where in the high, you know, where in your hour or whatever your hydration, you know, how much you're going to take is the cup that they hand you going to be sufficient. Do you need two cups? Do you need three cups? Are you going to walk your water stops to make sure you're getting enough fuel and hydration in there? Are you going to run right through them? Those are all things you should consider. The thing about making the actual in-race plan is there needs to be a lot of options, not necessarily for the fueling and hydration, right? That should be pretty set in stone. But we talk about the pacing and the goals. You want to give yourself options because you might have a stellar day. You might have a day where you're like, holy crap, I felt like I was invincible. I felt like everything went perfectly. I think I could have even run faster. I smashed a PR. I got my A race. A race goal and, you know, ABC goals and you had a perfect day, but you might not have one of those days. We talk about goal setting for your race, you know, actually your in-race strategy. It helps to make goals that are, you know, we talk about ABC goals. You can do ABCD goals. So an ABC goal strategy an A goal should be a goal that is it obviously like you never want to set a goal that is unachievable, right? You know, if you're, if your goal is to run a sub three hour marathon, but you know, you've never run below a two hour half marathon in this recent training cycle, like it's probably not a goal you're going to achieve, right? So your goals need to be achievable, but your A goal should be an achievable, but a stretch goal. So if anybody's worked retail, right? <laughs> your stretch goal is like, once you would hit your main goal, your stretch goal is like, well, we're having a really good day. Let's go for this goal. Your A goal is a goal that should be achievable, but like everything has to go perfectly for it to happen. So this is a goal. And it's weird that they say this, a goal that you should be able to achieve about 20, 25% of the time. And I'm like, well, I don't, you know, I don't think people race enough to know what that means. Your A goal, I want you to think about your A goal is like in a, if you had a perfect day and things went perfectly based on what you know about how your training cycle went and what your current fitness says and what your goals are, your A goal should be the goal. You're like, if I got this goal, this would be like, this is the ultimate goal for my race day. And that might be a time goal or your A goal can be something that has nothing to do with time. And it could be something like my A goal is not to walk during my race. For some people, your A goal might be to nail your fueling and hydration strategy. That's a big one. 
for some people, your A goal might be to have fun or to smile, right? So yes, we think about goals, goal setting with races. We usually tie them to a very specific performance goal when it's time-based. It doesn't have to be, right? So A goal. If everything goes perfectly, your A goal. And that's a big goal, right? That's the that's the big goal. That's the goal you're like, yes, I, I you know what? I know it's going to be a real challenge and a lot has to go really, really right. But if everything goes perfectly, I'm, I, I know I can achieve this, but it's not going to go. It's not necessarily the goal that you're going to achieve 100% of the time. Your B goal is a goal that's a little bit more in the middle, right? So your B goal is a goal that it's, it's a little bit less, uh, it's a little bit less high reaching than your A goal. But it's still something that if you did it, you would be solidly like, yes, I that was a solid race, right? So if you think about your A goal race, it's like an unbelievable race. Like, oh my God, that was the best. Your B goal is like, that was a really solid race, right? I, you know, I did I did a lot of things right. I did very few things wrong. I'm I'm pleased with my result. I, I performed solidly. That's your B goal. And your C goal is kind of like a, you know, if I have a really terrible day, you can revert back to your C goal. Honestly, sometimes the roll of the dice is that you wake up on race day and guess what? It's just not your day. We all have bad races, right? We all have bad days. And it really sucks when a bad day coincides with race day, but it will happen if you perform, you know, if you if you do enough racing, it will happen at some point. If you, your C goal is like the, and that for a lot of people, C goal is like, just finish, just finish, right? Just finish. Um, or you might have a very specific goal for your C goal. It's like, you know, ABC goals that are time-based and then you can, you can go down A, B, C, D, E, F, G, right? So maybe your, you know, ABC goals are all time-based and your D goal is just to finish. Now the pacing strategy that you employ can be based on any one of these goals, depending on what you think is going to happen in the race. And what do I mean by this? A lot of people think you should always plan your pacing strategy around your A goal. And I don't always agree with that. And this is going to be highly individualized for the athlete because the A goal is if everything goes perfectly, right? The odds of everything going perfectly on race day, they're not, they're not slim, but like, they're not the majority odds, right? So you don't necessarily want to start with your pacing strategy as if you're going to have an A race goal, especially with the longer races, we're going to be working into your goal pace anyways, especially for the marathon and the half marathon. You're going to start for most people, depending on the course and logistics and all this kind of stuff, you're probably going to start slower than your goal pace, sometimes much slower than your goal pace, especially if the first part of your course contains hills, <laughs> depending again, course profile, all this stuff matters. So if you start mile one with your A goal pacing strategy, that might already, you may have been able to achieve your A race goal if you had just been a little bit more conservative at the start and worked your way on into that, right? So I generally advise that you have the start of your race strategy, no matter what it is, be conservative. And then you kind of, as you feel your way out, through the first part of your race, you then decide what kind of day am I having? And then you have a very specific goal for you know each day, right? If you're having a bad day, you're going to know it. 
But having a strategy in place for a C or D goal day is going to make it a lot more likely that you are going to complete the race rather than giving up and going home, taking your ball and going home, pouting and going home, right? I think that many of us have had experiences where we've had races go completely sideways. I'm going to say bad shit, but somebody complained about my swearing on another episode. Um, so, you know, you, we've all had the experience where you're like, you're in a race and you're like, wow, this is not my day. This sucks. I hate this. Why am I even doing this? If you don't have a strategy to fall back on and say, I'm pivoting to this strategy that I've already worked through previously, makes it a lot more likely that you're just kind of, kind of give up and have a bad day, right? So you have a worse day. So having all those strategies in place in advance, A, B, C, even D goal strategies for how things are going to go. You have your goals, you have your strategies for each of those. And the thing about the pacing strategies is that it's very tempting to say, oh, well, you know, mile one is this pace, mile two is this pace, and by mile three, I'll be at this pace, and mile four, I'll run exactly this pace, and then I'll, you know, these are my splits, and then blah, 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 blah. And so much of what happens on race day is, yes, for many of us, we want to understand we have a relative pace range. While your goal might be even splits, depending on where you are in the race and what the profile of the course is, et cetera, et cetera, you also want to leave a lot of room for how your effort feels because you may be able to run on effort that is a slightly higher pace. Maybe you're having an A race day, A goal race day, and you can really push it, right, based on effort. And maybe you're having a crappy day, right? So all of this is to say is that your pacing strategy should also include effort as well as your relative pace ranges and also understand that your GPS will lag if you're running in a major race, a major city. Your GPS is probably going to have some inaccuracies because of all those tall buildings and those bridges. Um, something I like to do, a little tip and trick here. If you run with a running watch, a Garmin, a Koros, a whatever it is, um, this is how I like to coach my athletes to run races, major races. Turn off your auto lap manually lap your watch at the mile markers or the kilometer markers of the race, and then configure your data screen so that you're seeing your average lap time and your current pace. Why? Because if your watch auto laps along the course, the odds are that at some point, if you run for long enough, your auto lap is going to be happening off offset with where the actual mile markers are. It doesn't really matter how fast your watch thinks you're running between mile a and mile, you know, mile one and mile two, based on what the GPS is. It only matters how much time it actually takes you to cover the ground from mile marker one to mile marker two, mile marker two to mile marker three. If you have an accurate understanding of how, what your actual time between those mile markers or kilometer markers is, you have an accurate understanding of what your actual pace is. So turn off your auto lap when you're racing manually lap your watch at the mile or kilometer markers and configure your data screens to see your average lap pace as one of your data screens. That will help you understand what your actual average lap or race pace is as you're going through your race. Okay. Goals, pacing strategy. The other thing I want you to work through is on the worksheet, describe three ways this race could go and how you will respond. Some people I have seen fill out this section 
as if like the race result happens and they are reacting to how the race went. That's not the intention of this section. The intention of this section is in the race, how things are going and how you will respond. Usually, you know, you might want to, there's, there's three sections here. You can have as many sections as you want. You can use this, you know, use extra paper, grab a blue book. Um, usually, you know, the best, best possible scenario, everything is going great. And I feel amazing. And I can push it all the way again. And I get a PR like, cool. Like you probably don't need to write that down. If you're feeling good. Awesome. This is a section for you to work through knowing your experience and what your specific anxieties and fears are about the race. When you hit challenges during the race and how you will respond to them in the moment. So a really big one is it is harder than expected earlier than expected. That's a big one because so much of our ability to sustain a specific pace depends on our expectation and perception of the effort, right? So I'll give you an example. If I'm running a 10 mile race, right? I'm running a race that's 10 miles long. And in my, by mile three, my perception of the effort is that this is the hardest possible effort I've ever run before. I'm unlikely to be able to sustain that effort until the end, right? My perception of the effort. The other thing, another one I see is that we talk about marathons and, you know, you want to ease on into it. The first part of the marathon should be really manageable. Not so that it's going to be an easy effort or easy pace, but it should feel really manageable. A lot of people interpret that to think that the first, first 10 miles of a marathon should feel really easy. So when they get to mile nine and they're like, this isn't easy at all, then they have a mismatch between their perception and their expectation and what's actually happening, right? And then they freak out. So describe three ways this race could go and how you respond. Those are the challenges I'm talking about. You can have specific challenges related to the course. You hit the hills and they like tank you, right? Oh my God, uh, you know, uh, a challenge or describe three ways this race could go and how you could respond. I, I, the hills are more challenging than I expect and I lose more time. The flip side of this is you describe how it could go and how you will respond. What are you going to do if that happens in the race? Is there anything you do need to change about what your pacing strategy is? Or is this something where you need to practice some mental strategies, right? Some mindfulness strategies. If you have mantras, my favorite in-race mantra is don't panic. <laughs> don't panic. Are you going to say, okay, let's say you use the hills as an example, right? Let's say there's a hilly section in the middle of your race and it like it, it drains you. You're like, oh my God, that was way harder than I expected. I lost so much time. How will you respond? Well, an example of this could be, I will use the next few miles as recovery to just focus on getting my breathing back in order, making sure I'm feeling and hydrating correctly and just keep moving forward. And the goal is hopefully when you experience these rough patches in races and you have the strategy worked out ahead of time with how you will specifically address that challenge, you will be able to overcome that challenge 
and then proceed on with the rest of your race. If you have experienced really similar challenges in previous races, like let's say you always have a crisis of confidence at mile, you know, mile nine of the half marathon and you totally lose it. Right. And you were thinking it's not a pacing thing. Like I'm not going out too fast. I know my feeling and hydration is good. You just have like a mental meltdown. That's something to identify and prepare for. And there are a lot of mental strategies that sports psychologists have actually, I'm, I want to do a lot more with the um, psychology of sport performance. I think it's really fascinating. But all of this to say is that if you have a plan, if you have a plan for all of these things, when you, if, not to say that you are going to, if you experience them in your race, you will have a way out, or at least you will be prepared, right? If you fail to plan, you plan to fail. If you haven't thought about any of the possible mental or physical rough patches you might experience during a really big race, if you hit one, when you hit one, most people have at least one rough patch during their races. When you hit one, it might derail you. Whereas if you had a strategy in place or had thought through that challenge beforehand, when the challenge arrives, you're like, you know what? I've expected this. I know what to do. I know that I just need to take a mile and just kind of let myself recompose. Or I know that this is a normal way to feel during a racing effort. And I need to not panic or I need to practice my mantras or I need to make sure I'm staying on top of my fueling or my hydration, all these things, whatever the ways that you will personally respond, the strategy that you have to respond to that challenge in the race. Because let me tell you, for most people, you get your fueling and hydration down. You get your relative pacing strategy down, right? You understand, reasonably speaking, what you are capable of running over the distance. If you have those things squared away and you are rested, you are ready, if you have trained, if you have tapered, all of these things, the biggest challenge that you are going to have is your mental, your mental state on race day. How will this race go? How could this race go? And how will you respond? Because if you think back about other challenging parts you've had in other races, or even in training runs, you can, you can use the experience of pushing through really tough patches on specific training runs or workouts as well. I got through that workout and I genuinely thought I couldn't, but I did. I know I can do this today. Those types of things. Because it's so easy to give up or to want to give up, right? (laughs) On these really hard efforts. So having a strategy in place for all of this, start to finish, starting to think about all of these logistics, these strategies, practicing, 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 planning, planning, planning from the moment you sign up for the race all the way through race day. Having a plan, even for shorter races, and I've talked about, basically we talk about big races, right? So the big race that you want, you've trained for months and months for. I also want you to practice planning for races in your training cycle. If you run tune-up races, or even if you just run races for fun, you're not training for anything specific right now, practicing the process of going through a race day plan is going to help you be more effective at race day planning for your big race. It all compounds. The skills we practice 
are the skills that we become better at. And planning is one of them, right? So what does this mean? If you are in a training cycle for a big race and you have tune-up races or even just fun races along the way, make a race day plan for those races. Include all of it. Go through the entire exercise. Your fueling and hydration. What are you going to eat the day before? The logistics of getting to the start line. How could this race go and how will you respond? What your goals, A, B, C, D goals are for that day. What your pacing strategies are. All of that. Do the plan as the exercise in your training so that when you have to make your actual big race day plan, you've done it before and you have made your plan, raced the race, and then been able to compare your plan to the race experience and like made some connections and learned something. You've learned something about how the planning influenced your race or if there were things you're thinking, okay, I don't think I actually sufficiently prepared for this and it happened anyways or whatever the thing is, right? Identifying the deficits in your planning during your training cycle will help you make a better race day plan for your big race. Like I said, so many things are out of your control when you race day arrives. You want to not be a control freak, but control for as many things as you possibly can. And you actually have control over a lot more than you think that you do. So if you think about all the things you have control over, you don't have control over the weather and we know that, but you have control over what you're going to wear and where you're going to stay and what you're going to eat. And you have control over, you know, how you've prepared for this race from a mental standpoint. You've control over, (laughs) you've control over your body and your mind. It may not feel like it, but you do. So practice, practice, practice the planning so that when you plan for your big day, you already know what to do. And then the more you race, the more you make these plans, the better you're going to be at planning and racing, getting the feedback from the race and connecting with the plan and how things go. And you're going to learn from the experience. Every single time you do it, you're going to learn something. And that's the whole point about why we do this, right? Your training doesn't happen in a vacuum. Well, every single race cycle that you do compounds on each other, right? This is compound interest of racing. You're going to learn something. If you go through an entire race training cycle and you finish it and think you didn't learn anything, I would reassess that evaluation. I would rethink that because you probably learned a lot more than you think. And trust in yourself. Trust in your ability to do this. This is what you've prepared for, right? This is what the plan's going to help you do. The rate the plan is going to help you have the best race day experience and the best race day performance you can have on that day. So, that's enough out of me. You can get your own worksheet on my website. You can get it through my Instagram bio link. Uh, it is free. It is a PDF. This is a worksheet that not only do I use it with my athletes, I personally use it. I made this thing and I use it because <laughs> I realized that one of the things that I was lacking on race day is that I wasn't planning for these little things and I was making really bad decisions in the moment. And having a race day plan is going to allow you to peel away all the layers of anxiety and perform at your fullest on race day. So there you have it. Planning for your race day. 
And I know that we have, it sounds like, you know, races are really back this year. Uh, I congratulations to everybody who's gotten into a big fall race. I know that there are some lotteries still outstanding. So if you are thinking about doing a big spring or fall race or any race in between, I would encourage you to really practice your planning skills when it comes to that practice planning for your race. Even if it's just the one in your local town and it's just a, it's just a short one and it's a no stakes race planning for that will help you get the experience of planning for when the big race day does come your way. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget you can always find and follow me on Instagram at running explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.